Aloha, everyone. On behalf of Domino's Hawaii, we wanted to take a moment to thank our team members for working through these trying times. And we wanted to thank our community for not just supporting us, but most importantly, supporting each other amid this climate of change and continued uncertainty. It is difficult to fathom some of the recent tragedies that have occurred, but what we can do collectively is aspire to be better for one another. We don't want to disrupt this message by taking time to promote some meaningless special. All that can be found on our website or app. Instead, once again, mahalo for your strength and your character. And we look forward to our very special community here in Hawaii getting back to work and making the world a better place. And with that, let's talk sports. What's up, Jordan? Let's do it again. We'll warm things up here, a little pregame like we usually do at the beginning of each episode of the podcast. The new Toon Squad uniforms for the Space Jam sequel, Space Jam, A New Legacy, starring LeBron James, were revealed. A social media post featuring LeBron in the new unis, which are clearly more colorful, dare I say a little more cartoonish with its graphic setup than the Michael Jordan originals for many years back. Uh, which Toon Squad uniforms do you prefer? This is a hot topic right here. This is, right? The big reveal just before the playoffs too, right? This is usually when LeBron goes uh, social media silence. Uh, but this year he said he's going to keep it open, uh, especially in the bubble. And so he just drops drops the Toon Squad jersey. As much as it looks like the jersey of like a men's league basketball or softball team that is trying way too hard, I kind of like it. I like that there's more color. Um, it looks pretty sleek from the front. Uh, I think it looks a little weird, like from the side profile, because it's got the giant, like the, you know, the, the Looney Tunes circle is sort of off center and along the side of the torso. Uh, so I, could, I, I would imagine from different angles, it's probably going to look better or worse. Uh, but I kind of like it. I like it a little more than the original. The original is clean. The original is classic. Uh, but I like that they're a little edgy. Yeah, I totally disagree. It was clearly the MJ uniforms are the better, more traditional uniforms, obviously. Uh, these look like, you know, Jackie Moon's Flint Tropics somehow mated with the uniforms of the Miami Marlins, and then they threw up. Like, that's sort of what it looks like for me. It is definitely more colorful, and they are taking it uh, at least visually in a different direction. Uh, but, uh, yeah, call me old school. But uh, I'm going with the MJ originals because uh, you're right. These look a little bit like all of the local softball teams that go and play these like big tournaments in Vegas and California and all that stuff. And they have like uh, the King Kamehameha statue actual size like somewhere <laughs> on the jersey. Like that's kind of what it reminds me of. It's just so graphic heavy. Uh, but uh, looking forward to the movie. Is there any possible way this movie is good, Jordan? No, probably not. <laughs> like no way, right? Probably not. I, I'm going to say it's going to be better than Uncle Drew. <laughs> oh, that is quite the high standard that you are setting here for, uh, for Space Jam, A New Legacy. We look forward to it. With that, we welcome you to another episode of the podcast, Let's Talk Sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helley. We like to get into Hawaii sports and beyond, uh, and we like to feature guests. And in this episode, we got our buddy Parker McLaughlin. We go way back with him on the radio show. I go way back with him. He is the son of Chris McLaughlin, who worked with my father on television coverage of University of Hawaii Volleyball for many years. I have the privilege of working alongside Chris uh, these days, or at least pre-COVID days. Uh, and so Parker's going to join 
join us. He's a professional golfer, a former winner on the PGA Tour. He is an instructor, uh, and he is coming off of his debut with PGA Tour Live, their coverage online of the Wyndham Championship, which took place in North Carolina. And so he is breaking into the announcing game. Uh, So he's become a bit of a renaissance guy as it pertains to the world of golf, even an upcoming project that he's going to talk with us about where he is inventing certain additions to equipment out on the golf course that he says should help amateur players play better. And man, I'm looking forward to anything that could give me any kind of uh, edge in trying to improve my awful awful golf game out there on the course but he's getting into sort of the the equipment side of it and so uh, that's really exciting stuff we'll talk to parker about that this guy does everything right when it comes to golf uh, he's um the heck of a player we know that and always fun to catch up with him and and i think very much growing into what seems like a natural progression for him uh all thanks to our old radio show right we used to have him on all the time and it was like you should be doing this much more often <laughs> at much higher levels than our radio show. Uh, and it's happened. It's happened now. He's on PGA Tour Live. Uh, hopefully there is more of that to come in the future. Did a great job this past weekend. So good catching up with Parker. He, he did a great job and uh, really, really proud of him and uh, looking forward to playing you that interview in just a little bit. But with that, let's get to our game time. We have a host of topics that we want to try to fly through here, so we'll try to keep the pace going. John Gruden, head coach for the Las Vegas Raiders, has been publicly raving about his new quarterback backup, at least as it currently stands, Marcus Mariota, who came over from the Tennessee Titans. He called him a dazzling playmaker, says that some of what he saw in terms of his ability to extend plays his ability to run with the football again dazzling was his word do we need to read any further into these comments do we start considering there to be any chance that Marcus Mariota actually is picked as the starter to open this upcoming fingers crossed NFL season over Derek Carr I still think he, you know, it's, it's less than 50-50 for him. I, think, I still think it's a little bit of a long shot. Uh, I, we know Gruden loves Mariota, right? From, from the Gruden quarterback camp days when he was coming out of Oregon, he has always been very complimentary of Marcus. And I think Marcus brings a skill set that John Gruden covets, that he wants to work with. Uh, and I think that is something that we could see. I think the one thing that's going to hurt is the fact that there's no preseason. There's no opportunity for Marcus to go out there and showcase what he is picking up. Obviously, they're going to have some inter-squad type stuff, but it's not live, right? It's not quite live in a real game. They can't really do the scrimmages or anything like that. So he's not going to have the opportunity to go out with his guys, whether it's in the second unit, whether probably at points we're going to be with the first unit in a normal preseason and really showcase, right, what he's picking up, what he's learned with Gruden in that offense so I think that's going to hurt a little bit. Um, and, and we'll see how Derek Carr performs. Right, He's going to be pushed a, a little bit by Marcus. But I, I do think the lack of a preseason probably decreases the odds of Marcus being the opening week starter. Yeah, I agree with that. But I think what's interesting about this is you don't or haven't much heard John Gruden saying these kinds of things about Derek Carr, (laughs) right? When's the last time you heard John Gruden call Derek Carr a dazzling playmaker? And I get it. I think Gruden's talking a little bit more about Marcus Mariota's ability to make the unorthodox play, which is something that has been a part of him since he was playing back uh, in high school at St. Louis. But 
I, I think that's interesting to me is just how that frames this quarterback competition. I, I'm with you. I'm not sure if there's going to be enough in the way of game-like reps to convince John Gruden uh, that it is justifiable, certainly from the public perspective, management perspective, to replace Derek Carr as the starter to open the season. But I do think that it puts things into a certain framework where you can easily see if things do not flow smoothly with Derek Carr behind center early on, it could be a quick hook and a quick turn to Marcus Mariota. And maybe even like we saw, at least to a degree with Tennessee last season, working Marcus in for a certain amount of snaps and reps as a weapon offensively. Uh, Interesting stuff certainly coming out of the early NFL training camp. Let's move over to the NBA. It's playoff time. In fact, as we record this, we are getting into day two of the wall-to-wall NBA playoff coverage on TV. It's kind of like watching the NCAA tournament. So it has been a lot of fun, certainly for me, but you have a lot of subplots here. Russell Westbrook coming back from injury for the Rockets. They're not sure when they can expect him to be back in action. The Utah Jazz down two starters for various reasons. You had the Dallas Mavericks pushing the Clippers to the limit, but Kristaps Porzingis in game one of that Western Conference series got ejected with two technical fouls and Luka Doncic even though he went for over 40 uh, wasn't able to give the Mavs that game one Uh, so with all of that sort of out in the ether uh, who you got coming out of the West who you got coming out of the East here in these NBA playoffs yeah I'm still going to stick with the Lakers out of the West that was my pick to win it all Uh, so I got to have them coming out of the West right and then the East becomes so intriguing uh, are we buying Milwaukee, right? Are we buying the stock of the Bucks for as magnificent a regular season that they had, historically good in terms of domination and point differential and all of that at the point of this recording on a Tuesday morning? They're down double digits to the magic <laughs> right now. Sans Aaron Gordon, Sans Jonathan Isaac. Uh, they're missing some pieces here. And the Bucks, I still think, are going to win that series, no doubt. My pick is actually Boston. And that is, I, I wrote this down in my notes as we're preparing for the show. And then the news comes out that Gordon Hayward's out for like a month uh, with a grade three ankle sprain. So that's probably not the greatest pick by me right now, but I'm hoping that they can weather the storm, uh, at least through a, a shorthanded Philadelphia in the first week. And, and obviously the semifinals potentially against a Toronto team that I, I kind of went back and forth. It's those two teams, man, even without Kawhi Leonard with what the Raptors do is just so impressive, but I'm going to go with the Celtics. I think they've got the firepower uh, to get through a really crowded East. I think you can make a case, right, one through five, even if the, uh, the Sixers were healthy, one through six. Um, but I'm, I'm not going with the Bucks. I'm, I'm going with Boston. Boston, L.A., who would want to see that finals, right? Yeah, I think obviously the Sixers being short Ben Simmons, that, that pretty much eliminates them. Uh, Joel Embiid's just not consistent enough, didn't get the ball down the stretch, certainly in that game one. I'm with you. I actually have liked the Celtics, and it's in part because of the wax job that they gave to the Toronto Raptors prior to the playoffs. And I know it's just one game, but I do feel like Boston, even without Gordon Hayward, they match up better with the Toronto Raptors all the way across the line, uh, physically on the wings, athletically on the wings, and Jay- Jason Tatum is starting to turn into that dude that a lot of people since his rookie year have been expecting him to turn into. And I kind of thought some of that was overblown, but the more you watch him, the more you're like, okay, uh, you're starting to see some of those elements for sure. And so, yeah, I do like the Celtics out of the East. And yeah, for some reason, I can't buy into the Milwaukee Bucks. I know that they're overwhelming, but yeah, if I had to pick a team that I just feel is the most trustworthy on the East side, uh, I'm going 
with the Boston Celtics. On the other side, I'm disagreeing with you, at least in nickname, but I'm agreeing with you in city. I'm going with the L.A. Clippers to come out of the Western Conference. Uh, I just think that they are the deeper team, but then they're two-headed monster, right? With Kawhi Leonard being the 1A and Paul George being the 1B. That is a one-two punch combo that I think when it's all on the line, down the stretch of games, money time, uh, I just think those two guys are really, really reliable in those situations. They are interchangeable defensively. Uh, I think that that's just gonna push them uh, over the top We move over to the UFC and a fantastic debut for Hawaii's own, Pearl City Zone, Kai Kamaka III. Kai Boy Kamaka, uh, he defeated Tony Kelly, preliminary featherweight bout via unanimous decision at UFC 252 in Las Vegas, earned $50,000 as a bonus for the Fight of the Night honors. What kind of statement was this put forth by Kai Boy Kamaka? Yeah, that's what you want, right? In your UFC debut, not only do you take the fight on short notice if you're Kai Kamaka, you win your debut, that's going to lead to more fights, and then it's fight of the night, right? So not only are you a guy going out there and getting the job done, you're a guy going out there, getting the job done, and putting on a show, and a lot of kudos, obviously, to his opponent in Tony Kelly. That was quite a pairing for the matchmakers, uh, kind of, as we mentioned, you know, basically with less than a week's notice, uh, what kicked off the card on Saturday night, so impressive debut high energy aggressive from the starts uh those two guys were were willing to trade uh and, and i think a, a worthy decision for him he's guy who's riding a bit of a winning streak here and obviously now making his ufc debut so yeah for for kaika maka man those pearl city fighters they they know what they're doing and uh kai boy the the latest there and and i think what what we saw from him is a guy who will be um of entertainment value to the UFC, his style of fighting, his pace of fighting, uh, and that'll get you on cards. Yeah, I mean, this feels like destiny for him, right? I mean, he comes from a family of mixed martial artists. His dad, Kai Kamaka, I remember calling fights uh, that he participated in or cornered back in the Super Brawl icon days at the Blaisdell. His uncles, Ray Cooper, Ronald June. I mean, he has mixed martial art in his blood. And so I think we're just seeing it come to fruition now. I really enjoyed sort of the back and forth between the two fighters, the respect that was shown uh, on social media uh, with Tony. Kelly saying, hey, look, great job to Kai Kamaka. That was incredible. Kai Kamaka saying, hey, look, it comes down to your partner as far as being able to do that dance, right, and entertain the masses. And, and so there was a lot of respect there. But yeah, it was it was as vintage a performance by a guy from Hawaii with those MMA roots where you saw the toughness, you saw the aggression, you saw the fearlessness. Uh, I think that that is the recipe for uh, someone who uh, will earn a lot of fandom uh, if given more opportunities here uh, in his UFC career. All right, one last topic here before we get to our main topping. And uh, unwritten rules of baseball, rearing its head again. San Diego's Fernando Tatis Jr. apologized after hitting an eighth inning grand slam against the Rangers. He apologized because it came on a 3-0 pitch with the Padres leading by seven runs. The Rangers showed their displeasure with Ian Jabot throwing the next pitch behind Manny Machado. Jabot had replaced Juan Nicasio, who gave up the Grand Slam. You had the managers also both agree that maybe it was in poor taste for Tatis to be swinging on 3-0 in that situation. So it's about the unwritten rules of baseball again, Jordan, and this goes back generations. Does Tatis, in your opinion, have anything really to apologize for? Throw strikes. Just throw strikes. I, I, 
I mean, I get it, right? And and even um, you know, Tatis was like, okay, yeah, you know, maybe next time I'll I'll take on three zero. It's a seven run lead. It, it's not a ten run lead. Every game is heightened, right? I mean, it's a it's a short season. Teams have made up those kind of deficits in the past. It's not a a done deal. They were in control of the game. Absolutely. It was definitely done after he yanked that one out of the park. But it's it's just one of those situations where it's like, I'm supposed to take it easy on you because you can't do your job. Like, what what's that about? Right? It's like, maybe just throw some strikes so the count isn't 3-0. and And I've got the green light here uh, to just go ahead and park one in the bleachers. I, I think it's just, it's just kind of silly. Right? And even if you were upset about it, you can voice your displeasure because at the end of the day, the Rangers manager, the folks with the Padres, they were both kind of along the lines of, yeah, didn't I, I get it, probably don't like it, probably maybe want to do it a little differently next time. That would have been fine. I think expressing that would have been fine. Throwing the ball behind Manny Machado to get that point across, absolutely idiotic. Like, just, just share after the game. It's not like the Padres were showboating. They seem to, to understand, like, hey, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe a little bad taste. Uh, but you didn't have to throw it at dude to make that point, right? Like, that part is, is even more idiotic. Yeah, I think Nicasio was the guy who walked the bases loaded, right? I think it was a single and then two walks, so the bases were loaded for Tatis Jr. The onus is on him not to put himself in that position, and so I, I don't get some of that. And I think that's the disconnect that baseball has with a lot of the younger generation of would-be fans who maybe, as Tatis Jr. admitted after the game – aren't that privy to some of these unwritten rules and expectations. And so because of a poor performance in that inning in a game that is a little lopsided, but we have seen crazier things before as far as comebacks, uh, because of the poor performance of that pitcher, then the onus is on the hitter to have to adjust his behavior. And if he ends up hitting a home run and doing his job to the best of his ability, he is the one at fault. And I just don't get that. Don't quite see the reasoning behind at least some of these unwritten rules. I think the Rangers back in 2007 defeated the Orioles in a 30 to 3 game. So it's like it's just kind of where do you draw the line? Like so if Tatis had taken one pitch and it's 3 and 1, then it's okay that he hits the grand slam. Like I I just don't quite see the reasoning behind that. By the way, the Grand Slam and the Tatis family, it's kind of a thing, right? Wasn't his dad the one that hit two Grand Slams in a single inning? Yeah, so that was the first career one for Tatis, who now has more homers, at least at the time of this recording, than Mike Trout this season. Uh, So uh, Tatis Jr., man, he is a stud. All right, that takes us to our Domino's Hawaii main topping, and we're talking with Parker McLaughlin, professional golfer. He's also an instructor, coming off of his announcing debut on PGA Tour Live. So let's go ahead and play that interview with Parker McLaughlin right now. All right, we're here with Parker. Uh, it's great to talk to you again. Great to see you. It's, it's been a while. Uh, been a minute, as the kids uh, say these days. I'm not even sure if they still say that. It's probably <laughs> been a minute since the kids have said it's been a minute. But uh, yeah, Parker, you are coming off of a pretty interesting weekend. Part of the announcer team for the PGA Tour live coverage of the Wyndham Championship uh, in North Carolina. What was that experience like for you? Uh, I mean, you know, growing up, you know, watching, watching you, watching your dad, watching my dad in the business, uh, it was, I, I guess I, I probably was more exposed to it than most going into it. Uh, but I also, it, it was, it's hard when you got somebody in your ear counting you down to break and, 
saying, hey, we're going to this guy or, hey, we're going to that guy or, hey, make sure you talk about this guy's last last tournament. And so that part of it was like hearing the traffic in your ear is, is, is difficult and like it, it just makes you appreciate like the job that you do and when you've got a producer in your ear and you're trying to continue a thought or trying to keep the show moving. Uh, it's difficult, man. It, it's a hard thing. I, I felt like I got a little better every day at it. Uh, and even like we would do segments of like two hours on one hour off. Cause we're there, we were there from 7.00 AM to 6.00 PM all day long. And so even in the one hour off, I'd keep my earpiece in so that I could still continue to sort of listen to the traffic and, and feel like it was uh, continually like just being ingrained in me that I was getting more and more used to it. But overall, like experience wise, I had a blast doing it. It was uh, the, we were we were only on camera for like the first two minutes of the day. And then it was just off camera. You're just sitting there watching golf on a massive screen TV and just talking about it. And I'm like, this is awesome. Like, this was really fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we will take some credit for maybe uh, helping uh, in developing some of those on-air skills because of the uh, innumerable amount of times that we've had you on the show. Um, and, and your analysis is always spot on and it's really great. And we've even, I think, made comments like you should be doing a little bit more <laughs> announcing uh, if you have the time. And, and so, you know, I think it's just a natural fit. Uh, but I've never personally called or been involved with a golf broadcast of any variety, uh, streaming or otherwise. What is the, the, the golf tournament announcing strategy? Like what, what sort of is the, the linchpin to trying to uh, present a, a good product when it comes to announcing for a golf tournament? I think, I think in this, on the PGA Live part of it, which is streaming on their digital platforms, we're really sticking with two groups in the morning, two groups in the afternoon. Uh, and, and so you, you got to dig deep into, into like those six players in the morning and those six players in the afternoon tea times uh, and, and try to give people uh, a sense of, of those particular players. Maybe something that whether I knew a caddy and I could text the caddy and say, hey, you know, what have you guys been working on? What's been successful lately or what are you, what are you struggling with? So I was able to bring a little bit of that to the table, uh, even like like we followed Russell Knox. And so I was able to text his coach and be like, hey, what have you guys been working on? I saw Russell miss 10 cuts in a row throughout the middle of the season there. What have you guys been working on in the last month to have him play a little bit better? Uh, so I think that's part of it. But I think also uh, what I was excited about was being able to to take the viewer through certain shots that were around the green where I feel like my specialty is and, and say, look at how this guy's setting up to it. He's trying to hit a high shot here or, oh man, he's setting up to hit a little low running shot up there. And this is how you do it. Um, this is what you're going to look for with this particular shot. So being a little bit predictive, I think was, was fun on a, on a really small scale for each shot, right? Try, you know, try to say, Hey, you know, this is a really tough one. You know, like there was one that, that, that we did, we were following Jordan Spieth live. And he was in the right rough on 11 and the pin was all the way on the right. There were some trees that were hanging over and I'm like, the whole green worked from right to left. So everything about this shot was like, there's no chance he's even like keeping this on the green. And I've been over there on the right and it's not easy. And so I was like, I was like, man, he would be so happy if he just got this shot on the green. And sure enough, in true Jordan speed fashion, right. He hits this high cut out of the rough to like almost goes into like two and a half feet. And I'm like, I mean, that's just a phenomenal shot. Like you can't like, but I was trying to set the scene of like how difficult the shot was. 
and and I wasn't like disappointed that I was proved wrong. I was just more like, dude, this just shows you how great Jordan Spieth is and how creative and and special of a talent he is to be able to pull off a shot because everything about that shot said there's no way he can even you know get this on the green. Well, you did a phenomenal job. I really enjoyed it, and um, you know I think what you've had a gift for is not just the analysis of golf. I think most golfers, because it is such a meticulous sport, they have that ability to really sort of get into the granular aspects of the game. But it's a whole other thing altogether to be able to communicate that. So where does that come from for you? Is that just something that, you know, maybe inherited a little bit from mom and pops? Or or, or where, where would you give the credit to? Uh, yeah, I'd say... I'd say a lot of it is from, from my dad, just being around it. He's such a great communicator, whether it was through coaching, uh, whether it's through uh, some of the sports psychology stuff that he's been doing for and team building stuff he's been doing for so many years. Um, and also the, the, the TV announcing, you know, he is, I mean, been doing it for 40 years. Right. And, and, uh, and I've been, been able to watch it and, and maybe not, maybe I didn't necessarily always, pick up on it but it just sort of like rubs off on you when you're not around it that much uh but i'd say sort of maybe the other half of it is i i've been so fortunate to spend time with paul azinger uh over the last seven eight years and he's one of the best communicators out there he's he obviously just got the job with nbc being the lead analyst there for the last two years now and and so you know being around him and spending a ton of time with him understanding how he communicates the short game, how he communicates, you know, all that type of stuff. I mean, for me, he is one of the greatest uh, at communicating like how players think and how players feel uh, and then how a a player is going to execute a certain shot. And so uh, that would be sort of my formula as to where I got from uh, being a guy that is maybe just, a golfer to then someone who's like deep into the golf to then being able to analyze it and, and express it and communicate it in a, in a receivable and, and understandable fashion. Yeah. Zinger, another guy that's uh, pretty good around the greens uh, like you, I would say Parker. Um, you mentioned um, before we started recording here, you know, you, you've given a lot of lessons as well over the course of your sort of golf existence. Does that play into it as you start breaking things down from a, from a broadcaster standpoint? I mean, you're, you're kind of used to, picking apart swings and, and all those kinds of things. And then th- does that carry over a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it, I think a good instructor is always somebody that, that can communicate and can deliver uh, the same thing in like three or four different ways. So, uh, you know, like if, if, a, if a golf coach is trying to tell you, Hey, uh, you gotta, you gotta get a little more width at the top of your swing maybe you feeling width isn't, isn't working for you. So, but the golf coach still wants you to get that width. He's got to figure out another way of saying, you know, Hey, we want it a little bit wider. It's like, maybe hey, feel your wrist be a little bit more that way, or maybe feel a little bit more of a turn and not quite as much of a wrist set. So he's got to figure out a few different ways to, to communicate the same thing that he wants to get accomplished. And so I think through teaching, um, a bunch of amateurs and, and different tour players, you know, you're trying to, once you assess the problem, you're trying to say uh, the solution. And if it doesn't work in the first way, you've got to figure out a different way to say that solution. And then a third way, 
maybe a fourth way if they're still not understanding it or not feeling it. So yeah, it really tests like uh, it expands your commu- your communication skills because your communication skills, you have to go different routes. Some people are visual, some people are uh, feel players. Um, some people like to hear it, right? And so um, you have to you have to figure out different ways of doing that. And the same thing in a in a broadcast, you sort of have to. It, it, like I said, we were on for like eleven or twelve hours. You have to figure out different ways of saying the same thing over and over, right? <laughs> so uh, it's very similar. So that a lot of that stuff has has given me preparation to to do what I did last week. Did, did you find yourself watching and, and viewing? the rounds a little differently than say, Hey, if you're, if it's just a casual Sunday and you're watching the event or whatever it is on TV versus being, you know, in front of those screens and and breaking down each group, did did you find yourself watching uh, things unfold a little differently? Yeah, I think, I think that the, the host does a, does a good job of sort of teeing up the analyst. I think that's one part of it. Um, But yeah, I I would, the week before I went, I was watching golf, uh, which I, I normally don't really watch golf to be honest with you guys but I was watching golf and I had it on mute and I was just sort of like, okay, well, what would I say leading up to this shot? Or what would I say after this shot as an observation? And I think, you know, I was like, wow, this is going to be really hard. They're just showing shots of golf and I have to like talk about it. But then once you get there, you know, the producer sort of tees you up, Hey, we're going over to Jordan Spieth on 12. He's hitting his second shot out of the rough. And then, so you are, you're already figuring it out. And then the host will come in there and say, okay, we've got Jordan Spieth. He's missed another fairway. What do you, you know, what's going on off the tee or, or how does this second shot look to you? So there's a lot, it's a lot. Uh, I thought it was a lot less difficult once you had sort of two people teeing you up to then talk about what you were going to talk about. I didn't have to carry the whole thing on my own. So yeah, in that regard, I thought it was, um, a little bit easier than sort of what I was anticipating, but yeah, you're just sitting there watching in front of a, in front of a big screen TV, just watching golf and like making your observations on it. I thought it was, I thought it was pretty darn fun. You know, that's interesting. You say you don't usually watch all that much golf necessarily in, in other weekends. What's the reason uh, for that? Uh, I just have, I have two young kids, 10 and seven, <laughs> And we, we just don't have time to sit in front of the TV and do that. They, you know, they would, uh, they're, they're wanting to be outside playing soccer, playing volleyball, you know, whatever. So my son's gotten into it a little bit more. And so I think we'll watch a little bit more golf because he's like, we watched the PGA championship last week and, but he's just a little bit more into it. So we, we may, we may do it a little bit more going forward, but yeah, I just don't, I just don't watch a ton of golf. I'll see the highlights on, you know, the, the social media platforms and I'll follow the scores and see what's going on. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, 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 I, maybe some of the broadcasters don't, I, I'm not that fond of, you know, listening to what they have to say. It's the same old stuff, you know. <laughs> That's just going to get worse now that you are in the broadcasting biz. You're just going to hate on the other ones even more. Um, is this something that you're going to be doing more repetitiously here moving forward? I don't know. I, I, I did get good feedback uh, that, the the main the main guy that runs it there uh gave me some really good feedback and so i was i was excited to hear that he, he liked that i was younger uh than than a lot of the older guys that, that are currently there he liked that i was current that i had played golf with a lot of the guys that that we were covering um and that he just thought i brought a a, a nice breath of fresh air into it 
And so I uh, got some good feedback from him, got some good feedback from the, the actual producer. She, she was appreciative and, and thought I got better every day. And so I think that there will be more opportunities. Um, but uh, yeah, nothing, nothing on the books as of yet. Uh, but it was fun. And I don't, I don't know if I could do it, you know, 30 weeks a year, but it was for sure fun. And it was a good, a good way to like, um, get introduced to the broadcasting side of it. Uh, cause I, I did, I did a stint on morning drive a number of years back and that was such a, it was such a different thing. It was just more like conjecture and like the whole Stephen A. Smith talk, you know, mm-hmm. you, it's like, you have to be like the guy who loves to like have the attention on him and loves to uh, be the one at, at the table at the 19th hole telling all the stories. And that's just not really me. I'm a little bit more like, like I'm a good listener, but I'm also able to, to give you some substantive in, info as to, Hey, what is this guy thinking? What is he feeling? What, like what's going through his body? How is he going to calm himself down? What, what type of a shot is he faced with? I'm able to sort of give you those, um, those thoughts and, and, and those feelings of what that player is, is genuinely feeling and maybe what his relationship with his caddy is and how they're going about figuring out how they're going to hit this shot or win this golf tournament. And so I'm a little bit more into the substantive part, not necessarily sit around a round table and let's just BS for three hours. Like that was really difficult for me. I didn't, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't as like goofy and like telling stories and waving my hands around an all Broadway show. Like that just wasn't me. So, so not as much of the hot take guy. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I'm not the hot take guy. That's just not me. Like I'm, I'm, I'm more give you the substantive info and like really give you like a background into what they're doing, what they're feeling. And that's, that's way more up my, uh, my alley. Yeah. What, what did you make of uh, how the tournament ended up playing out at the Wyndham? Uh, Jim Herman goes 63 on Sunday, uh, catches Billy Horschel from behind. It ended up being a, a pretty exciting finish. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I saw that stat. Jim Herman has had two top 25s in the last two years and both are wins. Like, I mean, the guy just comes out of nowhere. 61, 63 on the weekend. Uh, nobody really saw this coming. Uh, if they did tell you they saw it coming, they're lying. Um, but, but Jim Herman, uh, I mean, the guy, he just, he smells, he, it's like, he's a shark when he's in the smells, the blood and water, man. He just goes for the kill. Uh, pretty impressive to have three wins uh, in the last four years. You know, he's got more, more total wins than Tony Finau and Patrick can't like combined, um, which is just crazy. Right. So, um, so anyway, yeah, I, I just think, I think, uh, it was really interesting. I actually thought Siwoo Kim was going to, was going to get the job done. And then once Billy Horschel got off to that really hot start on Sunday, I was like, Ooh, Billy knows how to close. Billy's going to get it, going to get it done as well. But yeah, no, nobody could have predicted that the Jim Herman was going to get it done on Sunday, especially with all those big names like Jordan Brooks, Justin Rose, all those guys. Like at the end of the day, Jim Herman was the one that got it done. It's like, man, credit to him. He, he went out and, shot 124 on the weekend, which I think is a tour record for lowest, lowest two rounds ever on the weekend. So, I mean, as long as it's exciting, I think that's what people care about. I mean, yeah, it'd be great if the big names, the massive names were up there, but it was a pretty, pretty exciting event. I think that the one story that I sort of tried to tell and, and keep hammering on was Rob Oppenheim, 
who was a longtime journeyman pro, been out there for 18, been playing professionally for 18 years. Never once has he not gone to Q school or Corn Ferry Tour uh, finals. And so that, w- that to me was like really interesting. If he would have made it to the playoffs, he's from, from the Massachusetts area. If he would have made it into the playoffs, I thought that would have been just so cool. Like it would have been the first time ever, like he doesn't have to worry about his job security. Uh, so to me, that was like a really fascinating storyline. And he ended up making a few bogeys coming in on, on the back nine. And he, you know, didn't, didn't, didn't get a, make enough, uh, have a high enough finish or make enough points to, to get into the playoffs. So, but that, that to me, like that type of a story was, was fascinating on Sunday. Yeah. There've there been so many of these storylines. A lot of the tournaments since the tour restarted have just been thrilling, especially on Sunday. You mentioned some of the prominent names and then, and then there's a guy like Jim Herman, right. Who, who comes out and wins it again. What does that say about just the depth of these fields week in and week out on the tour? Oh, any, any given Sunday, any, any guy that's playing in that field can win. Um, you know, yeah, the cream rises to the top and we see the Colin Morikawa's and uh, Brooks Kepka, Justin Thomas, you know, we see the cream rise to the top, but you know, geez, Brooke, Brooks Kepka was in the field this week. Justin Rose, former number one in the world, Jordan Spieth, former number one in the world. There's a lot of really good talented players that were, that were in the field this week and Jim Herman comes away with the trophy. It's just, it just goes to show you that the, the talent level is so deep. Uh, at the end of the day, it's just the guys that, that believe in themselves and believe they can get it done. Those are the guys that um, are the ones that are hoisting the trophy on Sunday or at least in contention. So it's been, it's been fun. I mean, the, the, the depth of the fields are so, so incredible on tour nowadays. Uh, it's, it, 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 the, the, the game of golf is in a good spot. I think we had kind of touched on it before we started, but um, the golf in general, I think, is in a really good spot, not only professionally, but just in general. It's just more, more rounds are being played. Uh, golf participation is up during this whole COVID, social distancing, uh, get outside, can't go to gyms. So I just think, I think golf's in a really good spot, and I think that uh, in the majors, in, in professional golf, I think that you know, with Colin Morikawa winning, I mean, this guy is going to be a world beater for years to come. But he's a little, he's a little like Jordan Spieth uh, from a few years ago. I, I hope he doesn't go and chase, chase that distance uh, like Jordan did. Uh, Colin's not the longest player in the world, but he's very precise. Uh, I, I just hope he s- stays secure in what he's doing because obviously it's working. I think he's up to second in the world right now in the rankings after being a pro for 14 months, which is just unheard of. So I think golf's in a great spot. Um, and it's fun, it's fun to, fun to be in this industry right now. I mean, I remember when I was uh, a senior in high school, it was like, dude, you were, you would not even mention to people like your friends or girls that you were interested in that you were like a golfer. Cause people just laugh at you, right? You're on the golf team. What we even have a golf team. What? You guys, you guys like uh, same people on the golf team and the bowling team, or like, are you guys, you know? And it's you just, and now like, it's like golf. It's such a proud thing. Like everybody loves golf, and Tiger made it so cool. And now it's just, you know, uh, participation is way up, over fifty percent up from uh, from everything that I've read and people that I've talked to that are running golf courses. Just everybody's out playing golf, and so it's just fun. It's fun to be a part of golf now as it's sort of coming into vogue and and becoming really popular among the masses. 
You know, I think part of that too is, you know, it's, it's always led by the personalities that are the most notable and the ones on tour. So obviously when Tiger blew up, there was an explosion of interest. And now you see, uh, you know, you talk about sort of the coolness of golf. You see a guy like Brooks Kepka, who has, you know, this, this Adonis-like physique, a uh, good-looking guy who could be a calendar model. You have these big dudes like Dustin Johnson. You have Bryson DeChambeau, who's about as quirky an individual as there is on the tour. Um, how much does that feed into it, you think, the, the value of having these kinds of guys who maybe aren't too shy as far as talking a little bit of trash to each other directly or indirectly through the media, and even some of that stuff? How much does that feed into it, you think? A ton. That, that means everything. You know, I, I was – I was looking at the NBA uh, calendar and, and who people were playing and whatnot. And, and you could probably argue once LeBron maybe declines after this year, that Giannis would be probably the next guy, right? Giannis or Kawhi would probably be the next two best players. And you look at Giannis's schedule where the NBA has put him and he's not the most outgoing, gregarious, like huge personality. He's just a great player, right? He's, but he's very reserved and, and stays within himself. NBA has got him at like the one o'clock Eastern time games and they're just like hiding him because they're not, he's not like the big personality. So personality means a ton, right? So you got LeBron playing in all the primetime games. You know, it's the same thing with golf. Like we need personalities. We need guys like Brooks and Patrick Reed who are almost looked at as the villain, you know, and those guys are needed though. Like we need those, those, those personalities and um, to offset the guys that, that maybe aren't quite as uh, gregarious. I mean, like Justin Thomas is, is awesome. Um, Rory McIlroy is amazing as well. Like both those, but it's like, you're going to have more people probably talking about Brooks Kepka than, than Justin Thomas, just because Brooks Kepka is like, man, I'm going to, I don't even, he's like, I don't even think golf is cool. Like I, like <laughs> I, I do, I, I do other stuff, you know? Um, so he doesn't like looking at himself as like a golf nerd, but he's also there to talk trash on Bryson DeChambeau and throw shade at Dustin Johnson. And it's great. Like, I, I think it's amazing for interest in golf and people write about it. They talk about it. And, and I hope he never changes. And he got a lot of heat for it last, uh, you know, Saturday night uh, of the major, two Saturday nights ago during, during the major there when he was just like, yeah, well, it's Dustin Johnson got like one major. Yeah, I'm not afraid of him. And you, and it's like, he got lit up for it, but it was like, gosh, that's the right thing to say. Like, that's what he was thinking, you know, and it's great. It's great TV and it's great for people to read about and talk about and pe half the people hate him, half the people love him. Uh, I just hope he never changes because that kind of stuff can kind of bite you like it did. It bit him on Sunday and he shoots like four over and falls out, <laughs> falls out of contention. But I just think, it, I think it's, you have to have personalities for, for a sport to be successful. You really do. We're talking with Parker McLaughlin. You said you're not really the hot takey guy, but you said LeBron's going to drop off after this season. So that's about as hot a take as you could exhibit here <laughs> on the podcast. Um, what about your playing career? When, when can we look forward to maybe seeing you back out there, not in the announcer role, uh, but in the player role? Yeah, so, you know, the fall season, you know, starts up right the week after uh, the tour championship is over. So, September is sort of when the, the PGA Tour fall season will get back started. There's between 11 and 13 events right now. We're still kind of waiting on the two events in, in Asia, China uh, are a little bit uncertain at this particular time, but 13 events scheduled. 
for the fall season, which is a lot. And hopefully there'll be some opportunities for me to get in there. Um, the ones I'm looking at are sort of the October and early November area. And yeah, that's, that's sort of when, when I would look to get back out there in a, in a playing capacity. You know, you've developed into this bit of a, a golf renaissance man. I mean, uh, competitor, announcer, instructor. Uh, and then you were telling us about this project that you've been involved with, uh, where you're actually now inventing uh, in in the the realm of golf, can you can you explain that to us? This is this is in, in, incredibly interesting. Yeah, so you know we all spent quarantine different in in different ways, right? And and a lot of the people that I talked to, like, oh, I'm so bored in quarantine. I just I can't get through enough. There's not enough shows on Netflix for me to get through, right? And I'm like, I'm on the complete opposite spectrum. I, I was uh, just in full creative mode and. It, it all sort of stemmed from, you know, I, I've had a, a number of, uh, you know, professional clients from Anna Nordquist, Kevin Streelman, uh, spent a little bit of time with Max Homa, probably six or seven different Corn Ferry Tour players and probably 10 to 15 other mini tour players. So I've had a ton of experience with these um, high level players that I've helped uh, sharpen up their short games. But on the other side of that, I've also probably given in the last nine months to one year, probably over a hundred different lessons to amateurs. And, and the big gap that I saw was between the amateurs and the pros was in setup. And in particular, bunker shot setup, pitch shot setup, and, uh, and a chip like, or a bump and run shot setup. And so between, between um, those three disciplines, I wanted to figure out how can I get my amateur player to look identical at setup to a tour player. As an amateur player, you're not expecting to hit it 360 like Bryson DeChambeau. But as an amateur player, you can look at setup the same way that Tiger Woods looks for a pitch shot or a bunker shot. There's nothing that separates you from Tiger in that realm. So I'm like, if I can figure out a way to give people a checkpoint as to how they can go from setting setting up like a normal amateur sets up and now I can say, okay, well a tour player sets up like this for their bunker shot, their pitch shot and their bump and run shot. Now I can bridge that gap and be like, okay, I can give you something in your wedge to look down and check and be like, okay, for a pitch shot, boom, here I am. I'm set up in the perfect spot for a bunker shot. Okay. Boom. Here's my perfect setup. Here's what the tour player looks like. And so I went through a few different iterations of it, but uh, finally got to a spot where I liked it. I, I, I hired a patent attorney. I went and filed for a patent. Uh, so I'm patent pending. And then in the last, in the last three weeks or so, well, I ended up taking that patent pending, uh, getting in touch with my contacts at Titleist, uh, setting up a meeting uh, at the Titleist headquarters there in, in Carlsbad. And I, I went and got a, uh, a meeting with Bob Vokey, the head of marketing the head engineer and the the head tour rep there and so i sat there i uh, i didn't sit there i demonstrated on their range there and and showed them my idea and uh, they they took a few weeks we went back and forth a little bit um but yeah happy to say that i signed a licensing deal with them and and we're now in the process of trying to bring this to market starting in in january to to on the Vokey wedge line and and try to um, it'll be a, it'll be an additional option on their custom, on their custom wedge shop. Uh, it's called Wedgeworks 
on their custom line there. And uh, you'll be able to, to hopefully add it as an option starting in January. That's incredible. So you say patent pending. I mean, can you give us detail of, of what it exactly looks like? Or, or are we sort of uh, forbidden from, from going that deep into it yet? Or Yeah, I, I, I'm not exactly sure. But I think that the thing that I can share with you is that it's basically a visual checkpoint. Uh, when you look down at the club, it's a visual checkpoint that you'll be able to have. And there'll be probably like a hard card that will go with it when you buy the wedge. I don't, I don't know my exact limitations on what I can, can and can't share because I know that Titleist wants to be the first one to come out with it. But yeah, at the end of the day, it's going to be a way to help you set up properly to all those three disciplines. That's really cool, man. Congratulations on that. Very exciting. Uh, your COVID experience has been far more productive and constructive than mine. <laughs> uh, I, as you alluded to, have been playing a little more golf because of the free time. Uh, but it has been a roller coaster ride. So if you could just shoot some prototypes maybe our way here on Maui, that would be much appreciated. I got you covered 100% dude. <laughs> um, and I'll even I'll even throw in a I'll throw in a little Zoom lesson with you. We'll 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 make it happen. We'll take we'll take them out you take them out on the course and uh, out to out to the range there and, and we'll work through it. Oh, now we're talking, man. This this is this is truly this is truly now a very uh, beneficial interview that we have performed <laughs> here for the podcast. Uh, Parker, it's it's always a pleasure, man. Uh, we we uh, go way back obviously with our dads working together and um it's great to see what you've done. Uh, best to the Ohana, and uh, thanks again for giving us so much time, bro. Yeah, you got it, man. Always great to see you, and, and uh, yeah, keep growing that beard out, bro. <laughs> Looking good. All right, thanks once again to Parker McLaughlin. Always a good time talking with him. Uh, he is just very eloquent in the way that he breaks down the game of golf, which is what makes him a perfect announcer, and I certainly hope we do see more of him in that capacity, if that is something that he decides he wants to do more frequently, because he's good at it, man. All right, time now for our post game best and worst. What is your best here for this episode of the pod, Jordan? Yeah, my best. Uh, so Spectrum, OC16, uh, and XCast, they've been playing a bunch of these old high school football games. And, and I cover these high school football games. You used to cover these high school. They haven't played a Kanoa Leahy special yet, as far as I've seen, though. A lot of old ones, Larry Beal and Howard Dashevsky and the coach doing some games way back in the day. Um, and the other night, though, uh, I was nothing else to do. I wasn't inventing anything like Parker does. And so I'm watching one of these old games, and it's the 2014 Division One state championship games, Middleani and Punahou. And so often, right, we, we talk about, like, what are the greatest games ever? And, and like, the 2017 St. louis Kahuku game always comes up. Uh, the 2017 line Luna Konawina game that went seven overtimes. And I always think that this game gets overlooked. Uh, it was 53-45, the final in that one. Milani beat Puno. There were 25 guys by my count. I went back and looked at because the names that kept popping off the screen. I'm like, that guy played here. That guy played here. 25 guys. And I'm probably shorting these teams a few guys as well. 25 guys played Division One football. Division One college football out of this game. 11 for Milani, at least 14 from Puno at either the FBS or FCS level. 25 guys in this state championship game that had 98 combined points in this. Mackenzie Milton was the quarterback for Mililani, of course. We know what he's done at UCF. Vi Malapai was the running back for Mililani. Wayne Talapapa was the running back for Punahou in this game. Those guys went on, obviously, to USC. Wayne is, is still at Virginia as well as a running back. Uh, there were two kickers who went Division One in this game, including Jet Toner, who was like an all-Pac-12 performer, at Stanford, five of the 10 offensive linemen in this game that started for both teams played Division I football. 
Uh, I mean, the, the list is ridiculous. And this doesn't even include, for Punho, Logan Williams, who played Division One baseball at Kansas, and he was a starter on defense, and Micah Ma'a who had an incredible game at wide receiver, who was like an All-American volleyball player at UCLA, member of the men's national team. Uh, and he was arguably one of the best five football players on the field that night. And so I was kind of going through this, and I was like, wow, there are a lot of dudes who went on to do something after this football game. That's pretty incredible. But let's get to the main gist of your side of this discussion, which is how come they haven't played any Kanoa Leahy play-by-play games? What's going on here? Yeah, I don't know. I, there, I know you called some good ones, uh, so I, I don't know. I don't know. I think, I, I think once, you, uh, once you left for the college side full-time, I think maybe uh, they got some hard feelings. Well, maybe it's more of a sign. I called some good games. Maybe I just didn't call them well. All right, my <laughs> best is also on the football field, or at least pertaining to football, the new Monday Night Football crew has been announced. That's right. The talent in the booth will consist of Steve Levy, Lewis Riddick, and Brian Greasy. They replaced Joe Tessitore and Booger McFarland. Uh, and so my best is, is this what I would see as an upgrade, and primarily because Lewis Riddick, in my opinion, is about as eloquent, uh, as intelligent a dude that there is on the air talking about the game of football. We got a glimpse of it. You know how they do those Monday night football double headers to start the season. We got a glimpse of it when he was doing the opening game. Uh, and I was just like, man, he should be part of the main Monday night football crew. Now he is. Let's give it a thumbs up on the upgrade. Yeah, I'm, I'm here for it. And I think it's a, a group that's worked together before, as you mentioned, on some of those opening games. Steve Levy and Brian Greasy have a lot of experience calling college football, the XFL. So there's already a built-in chemistry, I think. Uh, and chemistry was something that just never quite developed with that Joe Tess, Booger McFarlane, and even when Jason Witten was in the booth uh, as part of that crew on Monday Night Football. So, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for it. I, I'm with you. I, I, I give this a thumbs up for the new Monday Night Football booth. All right, we're going to move over to our worst. I'll start. The CFL, Canadian Football League, cancels its 2020 season, citing significant financial losses that would occur if the season were to be played amid the coronavirus pandemic. The league did pledge to return in 2021. uh, But the reason this is my worst is because I'm a fan of the CFL. And there have been many players with Hawaii ties who have gone on to stardom as part of the CFL. I mean, Chad Owen, Solomon Elamimi, and Junior Ayu, that's just the very start of the list. And I always think about a guy like Jeff Reinbold, former DL coach, defensive line coach at UH during the 06-07 season, two of the more fruitful seasons in the history of University of Hawaii football. And he's been affiliated with the CFL for the vast majority of his coaching career. Uh, and so it's just a bummer because the CFL is, is, is really entertaining. And I love seeing the guys with Hawaii ties who maybe don't quite get the opportunity to hang on in the NFL, find their niche and place in the CFL and go on to superstardom like the guys that I mentioned. So, uh, yeah, that's a bummer. That's my worst. Yeah, I'm with you. I saw this news, thought a lot about those same guys. I mean, the history of that league, right? The Grey Cup is much older than the Super Bowl when it comes to championship games and, and all of the Hawaii connections. A lot of guys from, from smaller colleges make it up there. It's a wide open brand of football. So hopefully they'll bounce back in 2021. But, uh, you know, just kind of the reality of the times, everybody's up against it. Unless you got the hundreds of millions and billions of dollars like some of these American sports leagues, it's going to be hard to, to go ahead and play sports. Yeah, doesn't that tell you something? The Canadian Football League is saying, I don't think we can afford to have a season. The SEC is like, not full (laughs) steam ahead. Let's do this. Tells you a little bit about the financial balance of things here uh, in North America. All right, what is your worst, Jordan? 
Yeah, my worst. I'm going to circle back to baseball. We were lamenting and complaining about the uh, the old timey guys when it comes to baseball. And earlier we were talking about Looney Tunes, right? Bugs Bunny. Uh, I'm going to go with the rabbit ears of the umpires, especially in that national series the last weekend, uh, where. Steven Strasburg gets tossed from the game while sitting in the stands, as a lot of the pitchers do now that aren't available. And then Anibal Sanchez was basically asked to leave the stands. It came out later that he wasn't technically ejected from the game, but the hitting coach for the Nationals was. And so I think one of the byproducts of not having anybody in the stands, any comment, any comment, Blue's going to hear. The umpires are going to hear, and they're going to be quick to toss these guys. And I've actually watched a fair amount of baseball here this season, and I will say – and I don't know if it's because they didn't have the normal lead up. It's just weird times. Like balls and strikes, it's any, anybody's guess. Anybody's guess what balls and strikes are now. So you can understand, especially the pitchers, why they're a little bit peeved. Uh, but if you're going to be tossing guys from the stands, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe thicker skin might be yeah. the way to go if you're these umpires. The balls and strikes have been very questionable this entire young season. Uh, and I'm with you. The umpires in general tend to be a little sensitive in those situations. All right, before we go, a little shout-out to our guy, Bobby Curran, who has been out. Uh, he is nursing a voice issue, and so uh, we want to wish him the best and a speedy recovery to get back on his morning show over there in Honolulu. Uh, so uh, get well, Bobby. We love you, man. Uh, hit us up on Twitter, at Kanoa Leahy, at Jordan Helley, or at TalkSports808. If you have any comments or feedback for our show, uh, once again, thanks to Parker McLaughlin for jumping on with us. Jordan, we'll talk again soon, bro. See you, man.